Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to the 15th chapter of the book of Genesis. My intention this morning is really very simple. I'd like to walk through the chapter with you, and then having walked through the chapter, to camp on one significant verse in the chapter. Very obviously, the verse that the Apostle Paul quotes in Romans 4, in Galatians 3, and that James quotes in the second chapter of his letter. Central to this 15th chapter is the word covenant. In this chapter, God is cutting, and that's the word, God is cutting a covenant. He is committing himself to Abraham and in Abraham to all who are united to Abraham. He is called in the New Testament, you will know in Galatians 3, the father of all who believe. And so in this 15th chapter, the Lord is continuing to reveal to Abraham what he first began to reveal to him in chapter 12. God is unpacking increasingly the covenant, the relationship that he has unilaterally established between himself and Abram. So follow with me as we walk through the chapter and then, as time allows, uh, look a little in some depth at verse 6. The chapter begins after these things. And it's referring back immediately, of course, to the previous chapter. In chapter 14, Abram has rescued Lot from his abduction by these four kings. He has rescued them. He has vanquished these four tribal leaders. And he has encountered Melchizedek, this enigmatic figure, who appears in chapter 14 and again in Psalm 110 and disappears until he is resurrected by the writer to the Hebrews, Hebrews 6, 7 and 8. Abram encounters Melchizedek and he recognizes the superiority of Melchizedek by giving tithes to him. He is priest of God most high, we read. And then the chapter concludes with Abram refusing to receive any reward from the king of Sodom. Lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So that's the immediate context. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. And there's much debate and discussion as to why the Lord says this to Abram. Well, very obviously, perhaps, he's, he's fearing the repercussions of these four tribal leaders. Perhaps they will regroup. And they will come back and, and seek to do to Abram what Abram had done to them. 
But I think that while that may be an element in the fear not, I think there is something deeper as, as the passage unfolds. You remember back in chapter 12, in verses 1 through 3, God had said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. But Abraham's got no heir. There is no son to carry on the line of Abram. And I think when the Lord says, fear not, Abram, and then says, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. He's saying to Abram, you can trust me, Abram. I have made you a promise and I guarantee on oath you can depend on that promise. I will keep my promise. I'm not a man that I should lie. I am your shield, your protector. Your reward shall be very great. And it's very significant that the word reward is used. What has Abraham done to deserve anything from God? Nothing. Both prior to this and subsequent to, the, to this, he experienced great moral failures in his life. He had been taken from a family of moon worshippers, Joshua 24. The reward he has is by the grace of God. All that God has promised to him, he has promised not on the basis of Abraham deserving or meriting anything, but because God himself is rich in his grace. But Abram says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. He's trying to square the providences that seem to shape his life with the promises of God, and there seems to be a conflict. A conflict between life as it appears and the promises of God that he has made. What do you do when providence conflicts with promise? You believe the promise and leave God to work out the providence. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. It must have been an astonishing moment. God has made him this promise, you, you will have an heir. And God says, you know, Abram, you don't understand the exponential nature of my promise. Not only are you going to have an heir, but look at the stars. Can you number them? This is going to be your progeny, your seed from your very own body. I'm going to do something so astonishing. That's why in Romans 4, 13, I think, Paul says that 
Abraham was the heir of the cosmos. Not just of a little bit of territory in the Near East, a little buffer state between the great world empires of Egypt, Assyria and Babylon. God had planted a seed that was going to embrace and conquer the cosmos until every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he believed the Lord, better perhaps he trusted the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, who brought you out from out of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, I don't think Abram is really expressing unbelief. Remember how Romans 4 interprets it? No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. I think he's just overwhelmed. How is this going to happen? A bit like Mary, when the the Spirit of God comes upon her and she's she's told that that, that she will bear the one who will be the saviour of the world. And Mary says, Lord, I'm a virgin. I mean, how on earth are you going to do this? It's enough for you to know that I'll do it. The Holy Spirit, episkiazo, will come upon you, will overshadow you. And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him. Cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And and, and there is some discussion, debate about what the significance of this is. Perhaps it's it's picturing for us and symbolizing for us. God's resolve in Abram's action to ensure that nothing and no one will interfere with his purposes. They'll be driven away. Drive them away. It's the same verb, I think, that's, that's used of God saying to his people, drive out these peoples in the land, these, these ten different tribes. Drive them out. And then you come to this amazing, remarkable encounter. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. God is putting Abraham to the side. Because God is going to enact his covenant unilaterally. God is not going to come to Abram and say, now Abraham, I would love for this to happen. If you will have me, I will be your God. And you will be my people. Let's make an agreement, Abram. Let's, let's come to a compact, Abram. No. Abram's put to sleep. Because what the Lord God does 
in enacting covenants is to enact them unilaterally. Now, that doesn't mean to say that Abram was to be ever passive. Because you'll remember how chapter 17 begins. The Lord appears to Abraham, says to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. The covenant is enacted unilaterally, sovereignly. It's a sovereign administration, but it's worked out bilaterally. Our lives are to evidence that we are covenant keepers. Or our lives will give evidence that we are covenant breakers. So Abram, a deep sleep falls in him and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And I think that's simply symbolic of the fact that God is present. We have such a trivial, shallow view of God in the evangelical world today. Our God, says the writer to the Hebrews, is a consuming fire. That's why he's to be worshipped with reverence and awe. Do you know that 40% of the Psalter is made up of laments? I hope you read the Psalms, hope you sing the Psalms. Because God is great and glorious. The unfallen angels veil their faces. And if anything needs to be recovered in the evangelical church today, it is a recovered sense of the godness of God. A dreadful and great darkness falls upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, looking forward to the Egyptian captivity of 400 or so years. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried with grey hairs, literally. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites is a kind of synecdoche, a part for the whole, representing these ten nations we'll read about in a moment, these, these ten tribal groups. God waits and waits and waits and waits. I can't remember which Puritan said it, that Mercy is God's proper work. Judgment is his strange work. If I can put it, and I think the Bible does put it this way, God would rather people come to him than be cast away from him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, and this interjective, particle. Behold. Whenever you see a behold in the Bible, you need to stop. Hine. Behold. Something is being signaled of deep significance almost always. Not always, but almost always. Behold. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, 
what, what, what's going on here? What, what, what's happening? What's the significance of this? Well, the smoking fire pot and, and the flaming torch are emblematic of who God is. Emblematic of who God is. And passing through these animals that have been cut, God is bringing on himself a self-malediction. He is saying, let it be to me as it has been done to these animals if I keep not my promise to you, Abram. God is saying, let me be cursed. It's an oath of self-malediction. If I do not live up to my promise, God made, literally God cut a covenant with Abram. Saying to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt, the Nile to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Canaanites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites and the Jebusites. To your offspring I give this land. But we know that that was simply emblematic of something grander and vaster. Romans 4.13 God's purpose is not, does not terminate on a little bit of real estate in the Near East. God's ultimate purpose is to make a new heavens and a new earth. To, to sum up all things again under one head. Ephesians 1.10 To make Jesus Christ the firstborn among many brothers. And God establishes a covenant. And covenant is, at least for what it's worth I think, the architectonic principle of the whole Bible. From the covenant of creation to the covenant of works in the garden with Adam... You need to understand that phrase rightly. Everything God does is by voluntary condescension. Through God's covenant with Noah, his covenant with Abram, his covenant, uh, the Sabbath covenant, his covenant with David, they're all dispensations or Arrangements of the one covenant, God's commitment, I will be your God and you will be my people. And God is pledging himself. And at the heart of every covenant, and it reaches, we don't have time to develop this, but in chapter 17 and again in 22 and 26, it reaches its its zenith, its omega point, when God says, here's the heart of Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will be your God and the God of your children after you. And that runs like a golden thread through the whole Bible till the last time it's stated in the book of Revelation. God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And that's the great significance that lies behind the Savior's words regarding the new covenant in his blood. And everything is, is... inexorably heading towards that ultimate, completive covenant 
or dispensation of the covenant, when it comes to its final realization, when God's promises to Abraham that he would be the heir of the cosmos would find its realization in the one who has won dominion over the cosmos by his sin-atoning death and by his resurrection from the dead. And I want, just in the remaining few minutes that we have, to to camp with you a little on those words in verse 6. And Abram believed or trusted the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And this is a significant statement, isn't it? It's quoted three times, as I said, in the New Testament, Romans 4, Galatians 3, uh, James chapter 2. And it's quoted in Romans and Galatians to establish the truth that it is by faith and not by works that God justifies the ungodly. That God makes us right with himself, not on the basis of anything we have done, but on the basis of faith. And The biblical heart of faith is not its quality, but its object. It's faith in Jesus Christ. Faith doesn't take you anywhere. Jesus Christ takes you somewhere. I remember when John and I were in the manse and I was in the front garden doing a little bit of work and John Ball next door was was in the garden. We got on very well and we're chatting and he said to me, He said, you know, Ian, I wish I had faith like you. And I believe the Lord gave me the words to speak. I said, John, it's not faith you need. Faith won't take you anywhere. It's Jesus Christ you need. It's Jesus Christ you need. Faith unites you, joins you to Jesus Christ, who is the Lord, our righteousness. That's why we should never preach justification Per se, we should preach Jesus Christ, our justifying righteousness. That's why we should never preach grace as if it were some kind of um, disembodied blessing that the Lord scoops out of a treasury and, and dollops upon you. That's Romanism. Grace is God acting in undeserved kindness and love and mercy towards us. We don't preach grace, we preach the God of grace. And so these verses, and we'll come to to the James 2 quotation in a moment. These verses in Romans 4 and in Galatians 3 are, is quoted to, to show that the way of salvation is not the way of working, but the way of believing, of trusting, of resting the weight of all that you are on the grace and love and mercy of another. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity, wrote Horatius Bonner. But let me note just three things with you, just briefly, in this sixth verse. Notice, first of all, that Abram's faith was personal and in a personal God. Secondly, it was propositional. 
And thirdly, to my astonishment, I've got a third P, it was practical. I can't think when I lasted a three-point sermon at the end of a, a sermon. It was personal, it was propositional, and it was practical. And he believed the Lord. God is entering into covenant with Abram and with Abram's seed. I will be your God and the God of your children after you. Christian faith is covenantal faith, but it is no less personal. We all must personally place our hope and trust alone in the Lord. Children, your father and mother's faith will not suffice for you. Your father and mother may be great believers, but their faith is not transferable to you. It doesn't come to you by osmosis. It doesn't come to you simply on the basis of family worship, though I hope you engage in family worship. You must yourself believe like Abram in the Lord. Abraham had covenant children who didn't believe the Lord. Don't simply take for granted because God has blessed you with a godly home and loving Christian parents that that is enough. No, you must yourself believe in the Lord. And notice that Abram's faith, while it is personal, was in a personal God. Abraham was made right with God, not because he believed God was a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, though he was that. He believed the Lord. Faith is directed to who God is. That's why we must never divide or take away from the Lord and separate from who he is, what he has done. It's the Lord he believed, the veracity of the Lord, the truthfulness of the Lord. He believed that If God promised this, God would do this. The character of God was to the very fore in Abram's faith. Faith is personal and is directed to a personal God. But secondly, his faith is propositional. His faith was doctrinal, if you like. He believed certain things about God. That God was a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. That God, because he is who he is, was faithful and immutable and unchangeable. It's not belief in justification by faith alone in Christ alone that makes you right with God. It's believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. But that believing is embedded with propositional content. Believing the doctrines of the gospel will not bring you to the glory. 
though you must believe the doctrines of the gospel. It's union with Jesus Christ and his righteousness given to you by God that brings you to the glory. But faith is profoundly propositional. It has content. But we must be careful that that our faith rests on Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And thirdly, finally, his faith was practical. And this is embedded in the language here and it's explicated in the chapters that follow. Which is why when you come to chapter 17, when Abram was 99 years old and there's a 13 year hiatus between 16 and 17. The Lord appears to Abram and says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. God's covenant commitment is enacted unilaterally. Salvation is all of grace. The grace that's sovereign, distinguishing, electing, eternal. But when God in his grace becomes our God and we become his people, that's to be evidenced in our lives. And there are two kinds of covenant people. There are covenant keepers and covenant breakers. And that's what the letter of James is saying, chapter 2, when he speaks about Abram being justified by his works. We don't have time to... Seemingly reconcile the two. They're not needing to be reconciled. James is saying, Abram's faith was manifested in how he lived. Now here's the thing. Here's, here's the big thing. Abraham failed spectacularly after this. In chapter 16, he has a child by his maidservant Hagar. Chapter 20, he falls into the same sin again he fell into in chapter 12 of um, risking his own wife's moral integrity for his own skin. His faith experienced punctuations of deep and dark declension. And the Bible never hides that from us. The Bible is unsettling at times. It almost seems to suggest, well, why don't I just go on sinning so that grace may abound? If God is so spectacular in his restorations and is so full of grace, then maybe like Abraham, I can go off and have a fling here. That's not quite what he was doing, of course. but And then do something bad. God will always be there to bring me back. Well, that would simply show that you have never been united to Jesus Christ. Because here's the thing. When faith unites you to Jesus Christ, that unites you to the life of Jesus Christ. Think of John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Every branch in me that bears fruit, what does my father do? He prunes that it may bear more fruit. And every branch in me that bears no fruit, my father takes away and burns. God's covenant was enacted unilaterally. Abraham deserved nothing from God. 
But the outworking of a covenant relation is bilateral. Walk before me and be perfect. Be blameless. Live according to my will, my revealed will, my purposes, my commandments. That's why Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room, if you love me, keep my commandments. Show that you love me. Show that you're in communion with me and in union with me. Make my commandments your happy choice. So, God enters into covenant with Abraham. And in Abraham, with all who believe, he's the father of all who believe. There's diversity in the Bible, but there is fundamental unity. If I had, if, if I could do this, I would, but I couldn't, so I won't. I'd love to tear out the page between the Old Testament and New Testament. If you asked the Lord Jesus Christ, what do you make of the Old Testament? He wouldn't know what you were talking about. He wouldn't know what you were talking about. The Scriptures, one book, from beginning to end, it's not 66 books, it's 66 chapters of one book. Same God, same gospel, same Christ in promise and fulfillment, same church. So the issue this morning is, is Abraham our father in the faith? Is he our father in the faith? May the Lord bless his word to us this morning.